0: Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth. Episode 5, William the Conqueror. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the tempestuous career of Robert I, who began his reign under the suspicion of murder and ended it by abandoning the throne and his eight-year-old son to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Whatever you think of the later career of William, it's hard not to feel sorry for him here. Pushed in front of a huge assembly of the great magnates of Normandy, Probably bewildered and not quite understanding what was happening to him, he would have known only that his father was leaving. The men around him, barely concealing their hunger for his position, would have provided little comfort, and most of the attention in any case must have been on Robert, as the various nobles tried to position themselves for his absence. We have no record of the parting words between father and son. They were never to see each other again. But one hopes that there was at least some attempt to soften the blow probably mixed in with advice and an exhortation to be a man. Practical administration of the duchy would, of course, be in the hands of others, but William must have been terrified when the moment came, of both his father's absence and the weight of increased expectations. The sight of the duke moving slowly away must have been among the loneliest feelings of his life. The shock of Robert's death was mitigated somewhat by the time it took for news of it to filter back to Normandy, the Duke left after the Christmas celebrations in 1034, and though it expired early the next spring, word didn't reach the duchy until August of 1035. By that time, the Norman nobles had nearly a year to get used to the idea of William as Duke. Had Robert died at home, William could easily have been brushed aside. After all, Robert himself had done exactly that to his own nephew when he seized power. Despite the youth and inexperience, however, Not to mention the terror of losing a parent. Things were not quite as bleak for William as they first seemed. There were two important things working in his favor. The first was that all of the various uncles, great-uncles, and cousins who might have made a bid for the throne had all publicly accepted William as Duke and sworn to support his claim. This meant that they couldn't openly break their allegiance without outraging popular opinion, and it undoubtedly saved his life. The second advantage were his guardians. Robert had left a talented group of men to protect and shepherd his son through the minority. Chief among these was the Archbishop Robert, William's great-uncle, the elder statesman of the family and the head of the Church of Normandy. For two years Normandy was as stable as could be expected with power in the hands of a committee. The enormous prestige of the Archbishop smoothed the transition, but there were limits to what he could do and it soon became clear that William's father had frittered away much of the internal strength of Normandy. Past Norman dukes had understood that peace rested on a tamed aristocracy, and had strictly regulated where and when their vassals could build castles. During Robert's reign, however, that had almost completely broken down. Most of William's relatives were counts. All had lands loyal to them, as well as multiple castles, and saw no reason why they shouldn't build more. With Robert's death having whetted the appetites of the ambitious, the nobility began expanding their power at William's expense. Unauthorized castles started popping up throughout Normandy, further weakening central authority, and there was little the child in Rouen, or his advisers, could do. Things went from bad to worse for William when, during the second year of his reign, his great-uncle, the archbishop, died. Without a man of similar prestige to control them, the guardians started fighting amongst themselves for preeminence. Whoever controlled William had an obvious advantage, so for the next few years the young duke was treated as a pawn, moved around to whichever guardian was momentarily dominant. While William's entourage was distracted, unrest was spreading through Normandy. Thanks to all the new castles, it was virtually impossible for a central authority to gain control, and ambitious knights began to make power grabs of their own, carving out virtually independent principalities. Even worse, they also started to involve themselves in the game of capturing and thereby controlling William. Things got so dangerous for the young Duke that his most experienced guardian, Osborne Fitz Arfast, known as the Peacemaker, took the precaution of sleeping in the same bed. Due to the general instability, however, even this proved insufficient. An assassin managed to slip past the guards and slit Osborne's throat right in front of his horrified charge. Two other guardians, Count Gilbert and Count Allen, managed to hold things together, but in 1040 Gilbert was killed while besieging a rebel castle, and the next year both Allen and William's tutor were assassinated. As Normandy descended into disorder, even the loyal nobility started to waver. The powerful Montgomery family, once a staunch friend of the duke, led the stampede and carved out an independent domain by switching their allegiance to the odious lord of Bellamy, a man who had recently killed his own wife, to marry a more distinguished candidate. By now, all vestiges of central authority were gone. Whoever controlled the local castle controlled the surrounding area, and the chaos started to attract the attention of predatory neighbors. The Duke of Brittany, a cousin of Williams, announced that before Robert had left for Jerusalem, he had entrusted his son to Brittany's care, a patently false claim that he couldn't prove and that no one believed. Probably expecting this reaction, the Duke invaded, but died just after crossing the border, and the threat vanished. A more serious attack, however, was soon to follow. King Henry I of France, known to his contemporaries as Henry the Castle Grabber, was trying to gain control of the Seine Valley. Chasing an enemy over the border into Normandy, he demanded that a Norman castle be immediately turned over to him as an advance base. When the frightened guardians of William complied, The king demolished the fortress and then rebuilt it to his own specifications in a successful bit of sabre rattling. Many of the nobles, tired of the rapacious ducal relatives and guardians, rose in open revolt, flocking to the king's side in the hope that he would provide a more effective overlord. Even Falaise, the duke's birthplace, was seized by the rebels and fortified for the king. With the situation growing more desperate by the hour, the one figure that no one had heard from, or expected to, abruptly made his appearance. William was fifteen years old, by the standards of the time a man, and ready to assert himself. Rallying his guardians, he chased the rebels out of Falaise, and then led a spirited defense against the main conspirators. King Henry, sensing the wavering loyalty of the Normans, and in any case not prepared for a long engagement, withdrew, claiming that he had demonstrated his power and proved his point. It's not surprising that William would emerge as a formidable personality. He must have had reserves of strength to survive such a childhood, and he had no patience for the fractious guardians who had held the reins of power for him. Dismissing them en masse, he surrounded himself with new advisors, mostly young and talented individuals who would stay with him for the rest of his life and become some of the largest landowners in England. William, however, was playing a dangerous game, most of the dismissed councillors were members of the ducal family, and they found it impossible to endure both the loss of their prestige and the humiliation of watching these new men get promoted over their heads. Some of them had as good a claim to the throne as William, and an idea began to form that perhaps he could be removed after all. An abortive attempt was made in 1045, largely failing through the disorganization of its members, but this only served to increase their determination. Choosing a new leader, Guy of Burgundy, an older cousin of William who was miffed that he hadn't been advanced quickly enough. They made plans to assassinate William. Speed was of the essence. By 1046 William was nearly 18 and they could feel their chances slipping away. Finally the opportunity arrived. William left for a hunting trip in western Normandy and the conspirators made a solemn vow to murder him when he returned to the lodge for the night. Fortunately for William, a jester overheard the conversation and warned the Duke not to return home, Not trusting his companions. William immediately fled, avoiding main roads and towns, fording rivers where he could, and plunging through forests at full speed. At Rye. he met a friendly local lord who gave him a fresh horse and his three sons as an escort, and the four of them managed to make it safely to Flace, where he took refuge in the castle with half the Duchy in revolt and Guy of Burgundy making demands. William didn't know who he could trust. So, in desperation, he appealed to his feudal overlord, King Henry the castle-grabber. This decision may appear surprising on the surface, but it was a shrewd move. The history between the two men was not so important. Alliances quickly shifted in feudal Europe. A king was only as strong as his control over his vassals, and Henry had good reasons to support William. A weak duke, propped up by royal power, was infinitely preferable to a strong candidate like Guy of Burgundy so he marshaled his army and joined William in Falaise. The combined army met the rebels at the plain of Vallasdun, and risked everything in a pitched battle. Even with several defections, the rebels had numbers on their side, but they lacked coordination as Guy failed to impose himself and each noble disposed of his forces as he saw fit. An early skirmish managed to knock the king off his horse, but the royal forces rallied and after several hours of fighting, the rebel army broke apart and was slaughtered as they tried to flee across a nearby river. So many men were drowned that a mill several miles downstream was clogged with the bodies and had to cease operation. Though Guy of Burgundy managed to escape to the castle of Brion and hold out till 1049, the revolt was for all intents over. The lesser nobility was exiled and the more important ones were pardoned and returned appropriately humbled to court. William, for his part, wanted to make good use of the victory, and moved quickly to consolidate his power. Oaths were a potent force in medieval Europe, and William, perhaps motivated out of the dim memories of his father, held a great peace council near the site of his victory. It was an open-air meeting, where the banks of the River Orne, so recently choked with rebel bodies, served as a potent reminder of the duke's power. And William invested the full weight of his office in the proceedings. Monks solemnly processed carrying the relics of a nearby abbey, and the assembled nobility swore to respect the peace. This was not just a local movement. The church had been trying to promote the so-called peace of God throughout Europe to prevent Christians from fighting each other, stop personal wars between the nobility, and to protect men of the cloth. The pope was well aware that it wasn't realistic to stop fighting altogether, so he asked the nobility to refrain from fighting Wednesday evening through Monday morning. As Duke and King, William and Henry were accepted, they had to defend their realm regardless of the day, but anyone else who violated it was excommunicated and forced to pay a fine. It was a momentous achievement, and to commemorate it, William built a little chapel on the site dedicated to peace, which still survives to this day. The young Duke had good reason to be proud. Still only twenty years old, he had survived his childhood and against the odds had become a force to be reckoned with. The lawlessness and infighting was not quite ended, some still saw him as a pawn to be controlled, but he had taken great strides to stabilize the duchy. Now, for the first time, his thoughts began to turn toward marriage, to ensure the future of the dynasty. Medieval marriages among the powerful were always political matches chosen by others. Feelings rarely, if ever, entered into the equation. But William had the rare luxury of independence. His father was dead, his mother wasn't in a position to influence anything, and his advisors were either his age or had been discredited and removed. He was one of the few rulers of his time who got to choose his own match, and he was determined, unlike his father, to have it blessed by the church. If William wanted to marry for love, he was also practical enough to make it politically advantageous for himself as well. After some searching, his eye settled on the beautiful, four-foot-two, Matilda, daughter of his powerful neighbor the Count of Flanders, and niece of the King of France. She would prove an inspired match. Nearly the same age as William, she was a formidable personality in her own right, and they would remain faithful to each other their whole lives. Uncharacteristically for a Norman duke, there would be no illegitimate children or mistresses. Before they could get married, however, a potential problem arose. William and Matilda were fifth cousins, and the church forbade unions to the seventh degree. Such issues were common enough in the Middle Ages. Since marriages were usually contracted between members of the same class, the royal pool had gotten somewhat shallow, nearly everyone was related to everyone else, and unless there were political reasons to object, most times a polite blind eye was turned. Pope Leo IX, however, had a number of reasons to make life difficult for the Normans. As one of the first great reforming popes, he believed that rulers should provide an example for the masses, and Normandy was notorious for the bad behavior of its ecclesiastics. In addition to rampant simony, the practice of buying church offices, the worldly clerics often showed a complete disregard for their flocks. One particular bishop, the Lord of Bellamy, had even burned down his own cathedral when his political enemies tried to take refuge inside it. A steady stream of these complaints had gone down to Italy, and the Pope was in no means to ignore them. He depended on the German Emperor Henry III for support, and Henry was currently quarreling with Matilda's father. More importantly, as far as Pope Leo was concerned, Norman mercenaries who had arrived in Italy were beginning to become quite a nuisance. Led by a ferocious pair of brothers named Humphrey and Robert Giscard, they had so alarmed everyone with their growing power that Leo himself was about to personally lead a coalition army to chase them out of Italy. So when the request came from William for permission to marry Matilda, the Pope responded by holding a council condemning simony. Perhaps not surprisingly, most of the Norman bishops skipped the event. They were almost certainly guilty and had no desire to face condemnation for their concubines and other indiscretions. Those that did attend returned to Normandy with the news that the Pope had specifically forbidden the marriage. William, not to be deterred, and operating under the principle that it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, went ahead anyway, and the next year married Matilda in a private ceremony. He didn't have long to wait for the political winds to change. The Norman brothers Humphrey and Robert smashed the Pope's great army and took him captive. A year later, Leo was dead, and the next Pope decided it was wiser to make peace with Norman power, in exchange for a commitment to build two abbeys and several charitable institutions, William's marriage was officially sanctioned. By that time, William had other things on his mind. The Count of Anjou had moved into the neighboring Maine and seized some border castles. King Henry, always wary of over-mighty vassals, arranged a joint expedition with William to check him. When William arrived, the inhabitants of an adjacent town made the poor decision to hang animal hides on the walls and beat them with sticks, chanting, The skin of the tanner belongs to his trade an obvious taunt about William's low birth and his mother's occupation. The furious duke captured 32 members of the garrison and responded by having their hands and feet cut off in full view of the town. It promptly surrendered. The whole campaign was just as short, and, if Norman sources are to be believed, William proved so gallant and masterful on his horse that even the Count of Anjou was impressed. At one point, he evicted a garrison by having two children sneak into a castle and set it on fire, This kind of resourcefulness and victory, however, convinced King Henry that William was now too powerful. Promptly switching sides, he made an alliance with Anjou and wheeled around to crush the presumptive duke. The invasion was particularly ill-timed for William because it coincided with yet another rebellion by two of his uncles, so he decided on a policy of falling back and biding his time. The king, finding no resistance and confident of success, divided his forces in half sending one column under the command of his brother to Rouen while he made a more stately progression. Unfortunately for the French, by the time they reached Upper Normandy, the king's brother had been lulled into complacency and had stopped making even the most preliminary precautions. Bivouacking in the little village of Mortimer, his soldiers got their hands on the wine supplies and decided to sleep off their stupor without bothering to post a guard. The Norman army fell on them in the middle of the night, leaving few survivors, William chose to inform the king of the debacle by having an envoy climb a tree and shout news of it into Henry's camp. Cutting his losses, the king withdrew, and without his support the rebellion collapsed. The duke was left in tight control of his domain, with a fearsome military reputation to boot. He could afford to be magnanimous in victory. Both of his rebellious uncles were exiled, but they were given generous stipends as befitted sons of a duke. But King Henry wasn't finished. He had clearly underestimated this dangerous young man, and needed to undermine his reputation before he grew too powerful. In 1057 he again allied with the Count of Anjou, and marched into southern Normandy, determined to topple the Duke from his throne. Learning from their previous mistakes, the allies formed one army and headed for the coast. William, though he was now in a much stronger position, was content to play his waiting game, refusing to engage the king's army until an opportunity presented itself. This tactic again paid off. The king wasn't knowledgeable about local tides, and while he was crossing an estuary, the rising water cut his army in half. William pounced and the stranded soldiers panicked, many drowning in the sea. The king and Count were powerless, forced to watch impotently from the other side as the disaster unfolded. The defeat dealt a serious blow to the king's prestige and though he managed to extricate himself from Normandy, he was never the same again. Three years later, both king and count were dead, and the political situation of France had changed drastically. The new king was only eight, and since the count of Anjou was childless, two of his nephews started a civil war to seize power, something which the wily duke did his best to prolong. For the first time in his life, William was free from external threats, and could do as he pleased. Normandy had never been more confident. Despite the unrest, the duchy was richer than its neighbors, and distinguished immigrants began to wander in. Lanfranc, a celebrated teacher from Pavia, brought a young Saint Anselm, helping to start a literary revival that would soon spread to all of France. A large Jewish community settled in Rouen, making it a center of commerce and a luxury wine trade began to flourish. The increased revenue trickled down to the nobility, who in turn built new abbeys and churches further spreading the revival of learning. William was now uniquely placed for the great opportunity of his life. Unchallenged at home or abroad, in his early thirties with a brimming treasury and a confident principality at his back, it must have seemed as if anything was within his grasp. Buoyant and self-assured, the duke turned his eyes across the channel. Join me next time as we look at England on the eve of the conquest, and the three would-be kings who struggled for its crown. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the Twelve Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.